they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> The dictionary definition of the adjective eclectic is selecting or choosing from various sources. When Bay Area musician J.D. Buell brings you Morning Train Wednesday 10 a.m. to noon on Mutiny Radio, that is exactly what he does. Select music from various sources to give you a unique listening experience. Rock, pop, jazz, bluegrass, gospel, funk, reggae, folk, blues, country and western, electronica, soul, disco, rhythm and blues, punk and post-punk come together with music from around the world with Buell's passionate and down-to-earth delivery. In an age of personal music delivery systems, J.D. Buell carries on the values of progressive FM radio when a listener could actually have a relationship with a programmer, someone who would create an eclectic musical environment where in both listener and host find fulfillment. The Morning Train with J.D. Buell, Wednesday, 10 to noon on mutinyradio.fm. Freeform radio for free minds. Did you know that compact fluorescent light bulbs use 60% less energy than regular light bulbs? And that each one saves about 300 pounds of carbon dioxide a year. If all Americans switched to CFLs, we would save more than 90 billion pounds of carbon dioxide. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Muni Radio in San Francisco. People from all over the Bay Area come to the Lindsay Wildlife Museum to experience encounters with live wild animals. The museum's living collection features more than 50 species of non-releasable native California animals. Visitors can see and learn about wildlife such as eagles, owls, bobcats, coyotes, reptiles, and other fascinating creatures. The museum's world-renowned Wildlife Rehabilitation Hospital treats more than 5,000 wild animals each year with the goal of returning them to their native habitat. The Lindsay Wildlife Museum is in Walnut Creek. To learn more, visit wildlife-museum.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Safe sex is more than just avoiding STIs and pregnancy, no matter what you're into. Make sure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Meals on Wheels is dedicated to fostering independent living for San Francisco seniors by providing hot, nutritious meals delivered to their homes. They're committed to fostering independent living for as long as possible. For more information, please call Meals on Wheels at 415-920-1111. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco.
construction work, working on a home. Living in a mansion, might live in a dome. Might own guns, you might even own things. You might be somebody's landlord, or you might own a bank. But you got to serve somebody. Morning, mutineers. This is Edit James with one of our signature songs. You're listening to the Labor and Love Show here at Mutiny Radio on 2781 21st Street. And yes, we are live. Edda James. And you know you got to serve somebody. Might be capital and it might be labor. But you got to serve somebody. Might like to eat bread. Maybe sleeping on the floor. That's it. Got to serve somebody. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Labor and Love on Mutiny Radio. Social Justice Radio for the Bay and Beyond. And this is Labor and Love, the show where we tell you like it is. That if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, Another person worked for a dollar they didn't get. 
if you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, you're probably on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Good morning, everybody. It's sort of a gray, misty Saturday morning here in the Mission District. We got a real mixed bag for you today. We got Merle Haggard. We got Mr. Block. We got MLK. We've got John Trudell. We've got Donald Blankenship. Mal hombre. We've got uh, workers in Qatar. Cater victims. The worst factory accident. Accident. Boy, I said it, huh? The worst factory disaster since the Triangle work play, work Shop, Panty Waste, whatever, whatever it was called, Shirt Waste Factory Fire. And it happened in 1993. We've got our regular features this day in labor history and... Uh, Win Workers, World Labor Report. Let's listen to James Connolly, one of the uh, martyrs, about, a song about James Connolly, one of the martyrs of the uh, Easter Uprising. Bravely to face when the all 
father rang out. Present arms and fire. James Connolly fell into the ready And the black flag they hoisted And the cruel deed was over and gone Was the man who loved Ireland so well There were many a sad heart in Dublin that morning When they murdered James Connolly The Irish rebel God's curse on New England, you cruel-hearted monster. Your deeds, they would shame all the devils in hell. For there are no flowers blooming, but the shamrock is growing. On the grave of James Connolly, the Irish rabbit. song from the Spanish Civil War honoring the international brigades Se va paseo y Franco se va paseo.
flor más roja del pueblo. Venga, jaleo, jaleo, suena una metralladora y Franco se va a paseo, y Franco se va a paseo. Venga, jaleo, jaleo, sonaban las ametralladoras y Franco se va a paseo. Franco se fue a paseo y duró 40. Another theme today that we're going to pick up on the uh, Spanish Civil War, particularly vicious brutal battle between uh, fascists on one hand the Spain of the sword and the cross nobility General Franco allied with Hitler and Mussolini who readily supplied him with all kinds of modern aircraft weaponry uh tens of thousands of soldiers against the Spanish Republic, a coalition of progressives running all the way from uh, Republicans to hardline communists to anarchists, uh, a loose coalition. And that was Lila Down singing about El Quinto Regimiento, the 15th Regiment of international working people who went to Spain to confront fascism. And I'll have some more about that because we're celebrating the bombing of Wernica, 26th. And this is uh, Nina Simone's about another unfortunate anniversary we have today, the death of Dr. Martin Luther King. Death ahead. 
down to reality, doesn't it? Not a performance. Not microphones and all that crap. But really something else. We've lost a lot of them in the last two years. But we have remaining Monk, Miles. <laughs> I love you too. And of course, for those that we have left, we, we, we're thankful, but we can't afford any more losses. Oh no, oh my God. They're shooting us down one by one. Don't forget that, because they are. Killing us one by one. Well, all I have to say is that uh, those of us who know how to protect those of us that we love, stand by them and stay close to them. And I say that if there'd been a couple of more, a little closer to Dr. King, he wouldn't have got it. Really, just a little closer to him. Stay there, stay there. We can't afford any more losses. He had seen mountaintop, and he knew he could not stop. Always living with a threat.
Miss Nina Simone there with her tribute to Martin Luther King Jr. We started out with Etta James and her version of Bob Dylan's You Gotta Serve Somebody, which is true. You're only alone when you don't stand up for something. And if you don't stand up, you'll be counted as standing up for sitting down. Speaking of King, let's play this blurb. Uh, We'll go into King's connections with the labor movement a little later on another show. But as is clear now to everybody, King was not just a peacemaker, not just a reformer who wanted to change the laws. King was interested in changing the whole structure of the American economic and social system. Uh, The last sermon that he was working on when he was shot was called, Will America Go to Hell? So let's listen to King talk a little on his last speech about the dignity of labor when he was in Memphis to help uh, workers organize, unionize, and improve their working conditions. One second, please. Demanding that this city will respect the dignity of labor. So often we overlook the worth and the significance of those who are not in professional jobs, of those who are not in the so-called big jobs. But let me say to you tonight that whenever you are engaged in work that serves humanity and is for the building of humanity, it has dignity and it has worth. You are reminding not only Memphis, but you are reminding the nation that it is a crime for people to live in this rich nation and receive starvation wages. Okay, that was M.L. King in his uh, last speech, uh, one of his last speeches. Uh, One week after King was shot, Memphis city officials reached an agreement with the sanitation workers. So his death had some positive consequences. in the campaign he was working on. And one of the last things he said in that speech was, 
your brother's on strike. And you aren't. But we all go up together or we all go down together. Another time he remarked that labor's goals are our goals. Decent housing, retirement, food and shelter, uh, ML King. All right, let's get on with uh, some of our uh, some of our regular features. This is uh, Workers Independent News with labor news from around the country. And uh, let me remark, I mean, I started out today with uh, James Connolly, the Irish rebel who was killed in the uh, Easter 1916 uprising against the English. And then um, news about the Quinto Regimento, the defeat of the, the Republican forces who were defeated and the death of King. There's never something negative happening like this, that there isn't something positive. Uh, Right now, we point at this nationwide campaign now to raise the minimum wage to $15. And this was begun not by big unions. This was done by workers on site who were resisting and actioning, not because of something they'd read or some speech that inspired them, but because they couldn't subsist or they were barely subsisting on their salaries while the owners and the boards of these corporations were getting rich. So they rose up, and uh, look what they've achieved. A lot of us in the labor movement are waiting for uh, big, huge labor actions, you know, that confront good against evil, or whatever we call it. But these are actual working people who stand up for themselves. They've got nothing to lose because they've already been totally exploited. So this show goes out to them. Here's the Win Week in Review. News Week in Review. I'm Doug Cunningham. Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton told the Pennsylvania AFL-CIO this week that the labor movement is vital to raising wages and reducing economic inequality in America. Sanders said there are no limits to what millions of us together can achieve for working families. We need to bring millions of people together, and in my view, the trade union movement is right in the middle of that struggle. To stand up and say to the billionaire class, sorry, we are not going to allow your greed to continue to destroy the working families of this country. Clinton says that the labor movement is critical to economic progress for all American workers. It starts with having a strong and vibrant labor movement that is supported in the White House and across the country. 
Ford Motor Company said Tuesday it's investing $1.6 billion in a new auto plant in Mexico, creating 2,800 jobs there rather than creating them here in the United States. United Auto Workers President Dennis Williams says that investment is very troubling and disappointing. Williams says it's an example of what's wrong with trade agreements like NAFTA and why the TPP trade agreement would be a disaster for workers in the U.S. When you look at what has occurred since NAFTA and the amount of jobs that we have lost to NAFTA and the fact that companies are investing in Mexico is another example how employers will go to uh, low-paying nations and that's unfair to the American taxpayer, and that's unfair to the American people, and it's unfair to UAW members. Here's an angry voter you can believe in. Florida Governor Rick Scott was confronted by Kara Jennings in a downtown Gainesville Starbucks. You cut Medicaid so I couldn't get Obamacare. You're an asshole. You don't care about working people. You don't care about working people. You should be ashamed to show your face around here. As warehouse workers at California Cartage staged a one-day strike Wednesday protesting company retaliation for an earlier strike. More than 200 workers were told Monday they would be fired by the temporary staffing agency AMRSSI. Stephen Hatch works at the warehouse. The company had its supervisors call a meeting and tell the workers that weren't a part of the warehouse workers resource center that we didn't have the right to organize and that we didn't have the right to wear our organizing t-shirts and vests and that we were going to get fired if we went on strike. The Fight for 15 movement says April 14th will be the largest mobilization of low-wage workers yet. Strikes and protests are set in more than 300 cities and 40 nations on six continents. The action comes after big $15 wage victories in California and New York. Workers' independent news provided by Diversified Media Enterprises. I'm Doug Cunningham. Radio Labor World Report.
Labor leaders around the world are reacting to an unprecedented release of more than 11 million documents showing how the rich avoid paying their fair share of taxes. The documents are connected to a corporation in Panama called Mossack Fonseca. The company specializes in setting up shell companies and offshore accounts, which can then be used to mask the origin of financial transactions and ownership. In just one small country, the Seychelles, the company has established 14,000 companies. I talked to Daniel Bertosa about tax evasion. Mr. Bertosa is the Director of Policy and Governance for Public Services International. The PSI represents public employee unions at the world level. I asked Mr. Bertosa to describe tax avoidance. Tax avoidance is the process of structuring companies and companies' tax affairs to minimize the amount of tax that is payable. And it's, it's normally legal, uh, but it's nonetheless questionable from a moral perspective and certainly from the perspective of the rest of the taxpayers who tend not to be able to arrange their affairs to avoid paying the bulk of their, their taxes. How do these corporations get away with this tax avoidance? What are they doing? One of the ways in which this avoidance is done is by routing profits through tax havens. Uh, and tax havens have two main characteristics. The first is they charge very low rates of corporate taxation or low rates on certain aspects of corporate taxation. And the second is their secrecy jurisdictions. And one of the advantages of a secrecy jurisdiction is that the, the home country doesn't know about your tax arrangements in that country. Is this tax avoidance a new strategy? Is it recent? In the years gone by, in fact, the, when the tax rules were written in the 1920s for multinational corporations, a company would normally borrow money in, in, in one country, uh, invest that money in the same country, employ workers in that country, produce goods in that country, and usually sell those goods in that same country. So all of the operations of that corporation were in one country. And if it was very good, uh, it would then move to another country, borrow in that other country to, to build a factory in the other country, employ workers in the other country, and then sell those goods into that market. Uh, and this okay. would happen all over the world. Yeah. What, what's happened since the 1920s when the current tax rules are written and haven't been changed since is that companies no longer operate like that. Companies now borrow from, from one country, they send the money to another country where they can uh, build a, a factory for production, but they can source their, uh, their back office support, so their telephone support in, in, a, in a third country. Uh, they can um, register their intellectual property in a fourth country, uh, and they can export the, the, the goods into a fifth country. And by moving the different parts of the production process into different countries, they can, they can manipulate where the profits accrue. Millions of domestic workers around the world do not have any time off. Radio Labor's senior correspondent, Seamarie Ainsborough, has a report. There are about 55 million domestic workers in the world. Almost half of these workers, some 25 million, have no allowance for weekly rest periods or annual paid leave. That's the key finding of a new study by the UN's International Labour Organization. The ILO is the UN specialized agency focused on matters of work in the world. 
Martin Olds is an ILO expert on working conditions. If one looks at the uh, most frequent gaps in the protection that, that we see for domestic workers, we have two very important areas that are the protection of wages, including uh, minimum wage coverage for domestic workers, and the second one the second aspect is the issue of working time. Domestic workers are exposed often to very long and unpredictable working hours, which of course has implications uh, for the quality of services, for the quality of lives and the health of domestic workers as well. Domestic work is growing and it is growing rapidly, so it is important that the protection gaps that we have, that we address that situation with the determination required and also uh, respond uh, to this need for domestic work by extending uh, decent and fair working conditions to domestic workers. The legal instrument which could cover the protection gaps mentioned by Mr. Oltz is ILO Convention 189 on Domestic Workers. The convention is a law that the ILO suggests its member states adopt. If implemented by a country, the law would provide domestic workers with the same rights and benefits, including time off, as any other worker in the country. Myrtle Whitbuy is the president of the International Domestic Workers Federation. Uh, many countries that I'm visiting don't actually have proper national labor laws. And I think in one way the convention can help to, to actually push that government to have proper national laws. In the other way, like we look at countries that do have national laws, it can actually strengthen our debate and our negotiations with our government. Because now what's happening that if my government has put something on hold, I can actually now say to my government that no, sorry, you know, the ILO Convention is saying that, and why are you putting things on hold? Convention 189 on Domestic Workers came into force in 2013. It has been ratified by 22 of the ILO's 185 member states, including Germany, South Africa, and Uruguay, the first country to ratify. Countries such as the United States, Canada, Australia, and the United Kingdom have not indicated if they will adopt the convention. This is Seamary Ainsborough reporting for Radio Labour. Now here with his report about union events around the world is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Here's a small sample of the more than 2,300 stories our volunteers collected last week. Our top stories section included links to news about the organizing efforts of Amazon employees in Poland, attacks on Liberian union activists, and a victory in the courts for a union in the occupied West Bank of Palestine. We had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. The public transport workers' wage dispute continues in Ireland. On Barbados, airport workers and other public sector employees continued their wage disputes. Electricity generation workers in Papua New Guinea walked as they escalated their wage dispute. Indian bank workers walked off the job for four days to protest the partial privatization of state-owned financial institutions. Australian air transport employees were pressing their demands with a series of short strikes at airports across the country. Portuguese postal workers uh, escalated their wage dispute into a walkout last week. Nigerian local government workers struck to force the payment of wages owed to them for months. And mine workers in India walked off the job, and their leaders began a hunger strike over a variety of unmet working conditions demands. Our top working women stories included coverage of the struggle over safety for rural nurses in Australia, 
organizing for gender equity in Namibian workplaces, and the efforts being made in Canada to establish workplace rights for the survivors of domestic violence. Our health and safety newswire carried stories to hundreds of trade union websites around the world about the hazards facing United Nations workers in conflict zones, a police strike over safety problems that delayed the reopening of Brussels airport, and the struggle to gain reinstatement for Liberian healthcare unionists who were sacked for protesting the lack of safety equipment during the recent Ebola outbreak there. Currently, Labor Start is running five online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. And that's it. International labor news you can use. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Okay, those were our two labor reports. And... uh, on the World Labor Report, they referenced the Panama Papers, a massive release of, uh, they say trillions of, pa- <laughs> hundreds of thousands of papers that document how big corporations and the rich all over the world are able to avoid taxes. When we do it, it's called tax evasion. And the the penalties are severe, often very costly for people who can't afford it. But when the rich do it, somehow it's often called legal. Well, in this case, it isn't. We'll have a little bit more about that uh, a little later in the show. Right now, I want to talk about and play some music of Merle Haggard. Haggard died uh, three days ago, uh, April 6th, 2016. And of course, if you don't know much about Merle Haggard, you probably remember this song. Squares can 
So that was that was the Merle Haggard that uh, that uh, a lot of people remember. It's not an accurate picture of Merle Haggard, though. Let's go back to the beginning. Haggard um, was born in Oklahoma. His parents moved to California uh, after their barn burned down during the Great Depression. They were quote-unquote Okies, and they moved to Bakersfield, California. Uh, Haggard's dad remodeled a boxcar, a train boxcar, and they moved in. Um, Haggard's father died in 1945 when Merle Haggard was nine years old and uh, started playing the guitar when he was 12, but he was kind of an incorrigible kid. He... uh, was convicted of a series of of a minor offenses, then robbery. Uh, he spent a lot of time in juvenile detention centers and worked as a laborer, truck driver, short order cook, hay pitcher, uh, oil well roughneck, and. Uh, His debut performance was in 1951 in Modesto, California. Uh, Arrested again, he was sent to the Preston School of Industry, a high-security installation. Um, Performed with a famous country and western singer named Lefty Frizzell. Once Frizzell heard him uh, sing. In 1957, he was broke. He was arrested for trying to rob a Bakersfield roadhouse, sent to jail, tried to escape, transferred to San Quentin in 1958. So this guy went through the meat grinder of the uh, juvenile and adult authorities in California. Um, Had a chance to escape but was talked out of it by other inmates. And the guy he was supposed to escape with was caught uh, and in a shootout killed a uh, California Highway Patrol officer. During Haggard's Haggard's, uh, imprisonment, he uh, figured out a way to make beer using some stolen uh, prison equipment, got drunk, was thrown in solitary confinement for uh, seven days. Finally, in 1958, a performance by Johnny Cash at San Quentin convinced him that the way to go was uh, music and not crime. In 1972, Ronald Reagan granted Haggard a full and unconditional pardon for his past crimes. By that time, he was an established country music star. And this song, Anoki from Muskogee, um, let's see, let's see what he said about it at the time. 
Um, that's how I got into it with the hippies. I thought they were unqualified to judge America. And I thought they were looking down their noses at something that I cherished very much. And it pissed me off. And I thought, you sons of bitches, you've never been restricted away from this great, wonderful country, and yet there you are bitching about things on the street, protesting about a war they didn't know any more about than I did. They weren't over there fighting the war any more than I was. So this was his point of view when he sang the song. And as a matter of fact, he wanted to follow the song up with uh, one about... Uh, uh, a marriage between an African-American man and a white woman and his producers freaked out and uh, wouldn't let him uh, or told him not to they wouldn't produce that song so at this point Haggard was sort of adopted as a hero of uh, middle um, traditional middle America um but later on, I want to I find the part where he said, he said, I was dumb as a rock when I was, uh, I was dumb as a rock when I wrote Oki from Muskogee. That's being honest with you at the moment. And a lot of things that I said then, I sing with different intention now. My views on marijuana have totally changed. I think we were brainwashed, and I think anybody that doesn't know that needs to get up and read and look around, get their own information. It's a cooperative government project to make us think that marijuana should be outlawed. Haggard later on recorded songs... Uh, Like this one, this is called Working Man Blues, released in 1969. We always do two or three for the working man, but this is really the working man song, one called The Working Man Blues. It's a big job getting by with nine kids and a wife. If I've been a working man, dang near all my life, better keep on working. Long as my two hands are fit to use. I drink a little beer that evening. Sing a little bit of these working man blues Well, I keep my nose on the grindstone Work hard every day I might get a little tired on the weekend After I draw my pay, but I go back working Come Monday morning, I'm right back with the crew I drink a little beer that evening And sing a little bit of these working man blues Brand new pair of shoes 
Merle Haggard with his uh, Working Man Blues. Talk about a turnaround. Um, Haggard later uh, verd that he'd used marijuana since he was 41 years old. Went through a five-month bout with cocaine. Finally emerging as he uh, realized <laughs> that wasn't the way to go. But talk about a turnaround. Uh, He said this about the Dixie Chicks in 2003, and we regularly play the Dixie Chicks here because, uh, well, for one reason, when the uh, invasion of Iraq happened under General George Bush, Private George Bush, the Dixie Chicks came out and, and said they were ashamed to be from Texas. And this caused a storm of controversy in the nominally traditional uh, right-wing country and Western uh, community. I don't think it's that right-wing. But anyway, 
Haggard came out and defended them. He said, I don't even know the Dixie Chicks, but I find it an insult for all the men and women who fought and died in past years, past wars, to defend their rights when almost the majority of America jumped down their throats for voicing an opinion. It was like a verbal witch hunt and lynching. Earl Haggard. So this was his commentary on the, the battle in Iraq. And it's called uh, America First. Haggard, at the uh, later part of his life, uh, with his anti-Iraq invasion song, America First, he'd come around to the point of view that uh, the war was a waste of money that could be used here to 
help Americans who needed it and to rebuild our uh, infrastructure. Okay, well, we passed the 11 o'clock hour, and I'm saying that this is Labor and Love, and you're listening to Mutiny Radio, mutinyradio.fm, social justice radio for the Bay and beyond. Our show is Labor and Love, opinion, commentary, history by, for, and about working people. Speaking of working people, This week saw the conviction of one of the uh, robber barons, one of the capitalists, one of the quote-unquote entrepreneurs. Calling a person an entrepreneur is kind of like calling uh, Columbus an explorer. Entrepreneurs with their money help direct the direction that our country and its institutions take. But anyway, here's Donald L. Blankenship. Reading from the New York Times here, which is going to be, of course, uh, if it's 50 against 1, they're going to multiply the 1 by 50 and make it seem like it's 50 against 50. Donald L. Blankenship, whose leadership of the Massey Energy Company catapulted him from a working-class West Virginia childhood into a life as one of the wealthiest and most influential men in Appalachia, was sentenced on Wednesday to a year in prison, a year now, for conspiring to violate federal mine safety standards. a misdemeanor now, not a felony. The prison term, the maximum allowed by law, came in federal district court here six years and one day after an explosion ripped through Massey's upper big branch mine, killing 29 men. How much is a miner's life worth? One year of Don Blankenship's life? 29 years, but served concurrently. Although Mr. Blankenship was not accused of direct responsibility for the accident, the deadliest in American coal mining in 40 years, the disaster prompted an inquiry that ultimately led to his conviction. This is the first time Such a high-ranking executive had been convicted of a workplace safety. And last week we referenced the the Triangle Shirtwaist factory fire where the two owners uh, were not jailed, paid no penalties, in fact profited because they had insured their building against fire. At any rate any rate the managers of the coal mine under Blankenship testified that he kept telling them to hurry hurry get out more coal run more coal run more coal and that he was aware of some of the safety uh, risks in the mine my main point is to express sorrow to the families and for every and everyone for what happened 
as he spoke, relatives of dead minors cried in the courtroom's gallery, and one wiped her face. Blankenship, however, was also defiant and told Judge Berger, it's important to me that everyone knows I am not guilty of a crime. Oh, I said he didn't pay a fine. $250,000. Okay, let's divide that by 29. We're talking about a little more than $800 for a minor's life. So this show is dedicated to those 29 minors and to the 3,500 workers who die every day because of work-related circumstances or conditions. Here in the United States, 250 of us working people will die today because of working conditions or circumstances of our work. Okay, so Don Blankenship, not long ago, it was virtually unthinkable that Mr. Blankenship, whom jurors acquitted of several felony charges, would ever stand before a judge. He said, I never thought, by the way, that I would be thanking a probation officer because I never expected to have one. Blankenship possessed deep knowledge of the mines, recorded many telephone conversations with subordinates, and received production reports every 30 minutes. He knew that following the safety laws cost money, an assistant U.S. attorney test said at Wednesday's hearing. What could be more serious than a crime that risks human life? Um, a lawyer for Mr. Blankenship said the government had exaggerated his behavior. The worst that can be said is that Mr. Blankenship, this is defense lawyer talking, knew about the violations and he didn't do enough to prevent them. The one thing you cannot conclude is that Don Blankenship was not interested and didn't care about the safety of his minors. Wait a minute. <laughs> Why didn't he do something about it? Uh, let's see. The blanket ship carried a mixed result. The prosecutors failed to convince jurors that he was guilty of crimes. Don Blankenship, uh, he'll be free in a year. And uh, the young man who was convicted of uh, stealing some... Um, Cantuna, was it? Is serving six years. Good old Mr. Blankenship. He didn't kill anybody, he didn't cause anybody's. But he's serving six, and Don Blankenship is. will be free in uh, one year. Move over to Qatar, where workers are at work. 
creating the 2022 World Cup stadium. The World Cup will be uh, will happen in Qatar, and they're putting a stadium there. But rights groups and organizations have raised serious concerns about working conditions in Qatar. But the latest Amnesty International stands out, reports stands out because it links alleged mistreatment directly to the work on a World Cup venue. Foreigners account for roughly 90% of the 2.5 million people living in Qatar, many of them low-paid migrant workers from South Asia. Most of the workers interviewed in the Amnesty report were from Bangladesh, India, and Nepal. Okay, their passports are confiscated when they arrive. They have to request permission to leave. All the interviewed reported going into debt to pay recruitment fees, illegal under Qatari law ranging from $500 to $4,300 to secure work. So they've got to be, they've got to pay to be abused. Some of those interviewed reported earning basic salaries of well below $200 a month, plus allowances of around $50 for food. The forced labor allegations involve workers employed by at least one small labor supply company contracted to provide manpower on the stadium project. Okay, they often work 14-hour days. Their pay was always late. When one worker said he wanted to leave and go back home, his boss threatened to withhold his salary and told him to keep working or you will never leave. Qatar says it's going to change the uh, system. Uh, One report we cited last week said that 1,200 workers had died already building this stadium. 1,200 and possibly many more. So we're going to follow this story. Let's play some music. We've been a while without music. And uh, that's not good. We get so carried away or uh, this one's for Don Blankenship Lidia Mendoza Mal Hombre roughly translated son of a bitch
song from the Spanish Civil War called Asturias about the final battle in the north where the fascists conquered the Basque country the, uh, where the anarchists were very strong Asturias
That was Asturias by Guadabarranco, referring to uh, the battle in the north during the Spanish Civil War where the fascists under Franco defeated the Republican, uh, mainly anarchists there in the north, where a lot of uh, anarchist policies had been put into into uh, effect. Okay, uh, we had a lot of negative stuff today. We had uh, the death of Martin Luther King. Okay, we had the death of 29 miners in West Virginia and how the owner of the mine got off with a not even a slap on the wrist, a tap on the wrist. We talked about workers in Qatar where, using some statistics, 1,200 have already died building a soccer stadium. But it's important to remember that there are people, always there are people fighting the good fight fighting to make the world a better place for everybody, trying to raise up the poor and the beaten down and the working poor so they have some kind of control over their lives, some kind of hope for the future. And one of those people I want to honor today is Dolores Huerta. We're going to hear some comments by Dolores Huerta. She's still in her 80s organizing. Uh, came out for Hillary Clinton, took a lot of flack for that. Um, not, I don't agree with her on that one either. But this is someone who gives us hope. It's so easy to look around and see disaster and oppression everywhere and give up hope. Well, these are people who don't allow us to do that. Here's Dolores Huerta. I had a very rich, rich childhood. I was very, very blessed and fortunate because my mother was a, a person that really believed in culture. Early on, I was a Girl Scout from the time I was eight to the time I was 18 years old, very active in Girl Scouts. As a teenager, I belonged to the church choir. I was uh, involved in dancing, uh, both folklorico, flamenco, uh, tap and ballet. I took music lessons, both violin and piano. The only negative thing about my, my teenage years, and especially in high school, was the racism that we had to endure. Uh, because we were Mexican-Americans, and because our, our, our group that we all hung out with, there was all the, the Asians, the Filipinos, the black kids, and the police were always giving us a hard time. So we faced that on the streets with the police, and then in, in our high school, uh, the racism against the uh, not only the kids of color, but also the poor white kids was very severe. 
I was working here in Los Angeles uh, with the community service organization. Uh, Cesar was the director and I was the executive secretary. And it was actually here in East Los Angeles when we decided to start the Farmworkers Union. It was at Cesar's house there where he was living there on Folsom Street. And he called me over to his house one morning and he said, you know, the farm workers will never have a union unless you and I do it. And uh, I thought he was joking. He said, no, I'm serious. Uh, I was lucky enough to be the political director for the organization. Uh, and we had all of these chapters throughout the state. Uh, we got uh, driver's licenses in Spanish and other ethnic languages. And we got the ballots in the Spanish language and uh, disability insurance for farm workers. And then we passed uh, a law that you could register a voters door to door. And so we were able to pass a, a very important law uh, to take away the requirement that you had to be a U.S. citizen to get public assistance. One of the things that we are working on is number one, bringing to the attention of the American public what the contributions of immigrants are because they don't realize how much people do. The work that they do, picking our food, we remind people the food that you ate today, some immigrant picked that food, probably an undocumented person. We have to legalize the people that are already here because they have earned it with their work and with their tax dollars that they have paid and their contributions that they have made to our economy. Santana performing Tito Puente. Yes, Carlos Santana will be performing this week at the celebration of Dolores Huerta's 80th birthday. The legendary activist Dolores Huerta, who co-founded the United Farm Workers of America with Cesar Chavez, celebrating 80 years, a veteran of the labor, civil rights, immigrant rights, and feminist movements in the country. Dolores Huerta was instrumental in passing the seasonal agricultural workers bill, which resulted in the legalization of 1.3 million farm workers as part of the Immigration Reform Act of 1986. Well, to celebrate her 80th birthday, this lifelong activist is holding a benefit concert at the Greek Theater in Los Angeles Friday night titled Weaving Movements Together. As the name suggests, the event aims to bring together immigrant rights, LGBT, feminist, environmental and labor activists. Dolores Huerta is joining us now from Los Angeles. We welcome you and happy birthday, Dolores Huerta. Thank you, Amy. Can you talk about what you consider your greatest achievement? Uh, well, 
uh, I think you mentioned the uh, legalization bill of 1986, which really uh, helped a lot of people get the legal status, as has, as you know, every immigrant that's come to this country has acquired legal status at one time or the other. Uh, then, of course, I think uh, many, many uh, pieces of legislation, uh, getting the ballots in the Spanish language for people to vote, uh, taking away citizenship requirements so that people could get public assistance, uh, and on and on, you know, uh, forming the former Virginia with Sister Chapson now, uh, forming my own organization, the Dolores Huerta Foundation for Community Organizing. And uh, when we look back and see how many people have been organized, how many, uh, you know, we've built a volunteer base and uh, laws that have been passed, and, you know, but this is the kind of work that I want to continue to do uh, for the rest of whatever life I have left, and this is why I started this foundation. And I want to mention this whole idea of, of bringing movements together is important because it seems like each one of our movements has a different path. You know, we have our Greens over here, Labor over here, the feminists, the LGBT movement. And I believe that in order to really get the progressive agenda that we are all looking for and searching for, that we've got to come together and, and, and you know, kind of unite our forces. Uh, we are, uh, you know, we are the majority in this country, uh, but if we don't come together, uh, well, then we're not going to be able to win our progressive agenda. Dolores Huerta, go back in time, go back to the early 1960s, and talk about how you got involved with the farm workers movement and helped found the United Farm Workers. What were the conditions then? Where did you come from? Well, actually, I had a very um, comfortable life. I have sort of a middle-class background, but after joining uh, an organization called the Community Service Organization, and this is where I met Cesar, uh, then uh, we saw the conditions of the farm workers uh, that were so desperate at that point in time that then uh, that's when we started the United Farm Workers uh, of America. And, um, you know, we worked together for many years until Cesar passed away. Uh, I left the union about six years ago. Um, and things for the farm workers, you know, are somewhat better in California, although many, most of the farm workers right now are not covered by union contracts. And in uh, other states, of course, things are even worse because many farm workers, they don't have unemployment insurance. Um, they have a very poor workers' compensation, if they have any at all, and uh, uh, they don't have disability insurance. Uh, we were able to get the laws passed that gave all farm workers uh, uh, cold drinking water and, and uh, toilets in the fields, uh, rest periods, uh, things of that nature. But that there's still a long way to go for the farm workers. But with my organization, actually, we go into the communities and we organize our immigrant population primarily, but this, of course, could apply to anyone. And we uh, basically raise money to hire and train organizers. Uh, then when the people come together, then uh, they can make a lot of changes. And, and some of the changes are absolutely miraculous. We've, uh, some of our people have been able to get swimming pools in, uh, in, in their com uh, communities. We have one committee that actually had a gymnasium built uh, at their middle school. Uh, you know, we've, we've got one another committee that's getting uh, a, a sewer drain for 27 homes that didn't have any kind of a sewer drain. And we have a youth group. We're doing uh, teen pregnancy prevention programs, financial literacy, the first micro-lending program for farm workers in the Central Valley of California. And the great thing about this is that the, the people are doing this themselves. On the census, we knocked on 3,000 doors in one day. And then, of course, we had to do a lot of pressure on our Blue Dog uh, uh, Congress people to get them to vote for the health care bill. Uh, that we were trying to get past uh, recently. Dolores Huerta, so many of the people you work with are immigrants, and the battle over immigration reform, immigrants in this country, is raging. Um, just some figures uh, uh, on the number of 
deportations, according to figures from the Immigration Enforcement Agency, ICE. The Obama administration accelerated the pace of deportations overall. In 2009, authorities deported close to 390,000 people, uh, which was 20,000 more than in 2008, the final year of the Bush administration. Your comments? Well, uh, we know that uh, this is uh, the big issue in the Latino community, I guess the number one issue at this point in time, and that it really means that we've really got to push to get immigration reform. Uh, um, unfortunately, I mean, you, you, I heard your report about the elections, and we still have a very large anti-immigrant caucus uh, in, in the U.S. Congress, and, uh, you know, we've got to focus on, on these Congress people and on the elections and take some of these people out of office. In California, we have the head of the anti-immigrant caucus, a Congress run a Republican named Bill Bray. And uh, these, these are the people that we've got to get out, and we've got to get good people elected. And my fear is that so many people are so disillusioned uh, with, uh, with what's going on right now that they're not going to vote in November. And I think that's going to be just a huge... When the people leave, the leaders they will have to... I grew up in New Mexico. Everybody got involved uh, in terms of politics. So you were supposed to be of service to others. I think part of that is the Catholicism, uh, but also you're not supposed to want to get any type of uh, recompense when you help people. You would do it because they need help. I had been teaching school and seeing a lot of the children that were in my classroom, they were the children of farm workers. And they would come to school with their raggedy shoes and their little bones sticking out of their t-shirts. And um, I thought that was so wrong. And I just remember uh, just being so upset about that. So when I was supposed to report for my orientation to continue teaching, I decided not to do it. And that was a big step for me because, you know, had had a family that I had to support. And here I am going to go start organizing farm workers for no money with all these children. And I remember just sitting there thinking about this, thinking about this. But in so many ways, you know, how you have your little committee in your head, this is such a foolish thing to do. How are you going to run off, like join the circus with your seven children and, and, and not know where your next meal is going to be coming from, where their next meal is going to be coming from? Uh, how can you possibly do this? And of course, but I just remembered I've got to do this and I did it. Dolores Huerta um, talking about the decision to become an organizer and uh, even though she had seven kids uh, had a good ch chance at a good career as a teacher good career I mean maybe better than organizing people for free in terms of money anyway um, and then an interview with Amy Goodman about uh, weaving together movements. I mean, this is a certain, this is a 
wisdom that Dolores, uh, people should sit up and take notice. She said, we are in the majority, but if we split ourselves up into different movements with different aims and goals only, we're going to lose. And then um, before that, Dolores was just talking about uh, her life in general and how she was raised middle class. She was a cheerleader. She took dance classes. She was in the Girl Scouts. So a change of mind, okay, maybe uh, similar to that of Merle Haggard, but for different reasons. Okay, we're getting close to time here. I just want to play this one. She was talking about deportees. This is Joan Baez singing about deportees. By Woody Guthrie.
Okay, time's up. Gotta go. Uh, that was Joan Baez singing uh, You're Just Deportees by Woody Guthrie. This is the Beast signing off. Saying goodbye. Have a good week and good work. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, another person worked for a dollar they didn't get. Remember, too, if you don't have a seat at the negotiating table, you're probably on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Call out to my soulmate on her birthday. We saw a hell of a game last night. And uh, being there with you made it really special, as always. So happy birthday. And a call out to my daughter, Vita. Maybe I'll have the good luck to see her today. She makes me proud to be a dad. And this is Carrie Miraji with the Internacional. Remember, you're only alone if you don't stand up. Insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite. I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby. There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternative to smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby! Good, because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again! And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4AltaCalifornia.com. That's 4AltaCalifornia.com for a non-addictive, pharmaceutical-free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4AltaCalifornia.com. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? 
will gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutiny radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> 